The podcast is also sponsored by my good friend Tiger at It's Tiger Music on Instagram at itztiger.music. You can find all his work on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. He does all the music and tracks for the Block Hash podcast. Go check him out. Also, don't forget to check out Blockhash Plus on Patreon. This is something that's new, where you can learn more about trading, technical analysis, and charting, all for the price of two cups of coffee a month. That's pretty damn cheap. Sign up at patreon.com slash Blockhash. And last but definitely not least, Blockhash is offering consulting for all your blockchain needs. Buying, exchanging, selling, safe storage, tokenization, NFT creation, point of sale, you name it. We can help you. Go to blockhashpodcast.com slash consulting and let's talk. What's up, people? It is Friday, January 29th. Surprise. Caught you guys off guard. We are doing two episodes a week now. So celebrating that for episode 104 we have Piers Ridyard, CEO of Radix DLT. So what is Radix? Radix is the first layer one protocol built to serve decentralized finance. So you guys need to listen on as we dive into Radix, its developer benefits and user benefits. And we'll also dive into the wonderful world of DeFi, which everyone just fucking loves nowadays. So I'm excited to talk about it in more detail. Anyways, be sure to subscribe and share this episode with somebody that you think would like to learn more about blockchain, DeFi, Radix, and peers. Enjoy. All right, peers, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Very good. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Absolutely. So before we jump into all the wonderful things we're going to talk about with Radix and whatnot, um, tell me a little bit about your background, um, your backstory, and how you got into the space. Sure. So uh, I've done a lot of different things, um, and they all sort of, I always feel like they weirdly end up circling back to what crypto is. Um, Mm -hmm. I... I originally went to university to do aerospace engineering because I was just a fan of, of, of like problems and maths and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I got there, what I realized is that engineering is actually the act of optimizing rather than like designing new things. Like that's a small part of engineering. A bigger part of engineering is optimization. And I, that didn't, that wasn't something that I felt particularly inspired by. So um uh, but like my my parents, both entrepreneurs, and and I was like pretty sure that I wanted to start my own company. In fact, even through university, I was starting my own companies. Um, so I was like, I should probably learn a bit about starting companies, running companies. So I did a degree and I changed my degree for Chinese, uh, from aerospace engineering to Chinese in business. Um, went to China, learned Chinese. Uh, when I came back, I was had like two positions out of university. One was to go and work for JP Morgan to do debt capital markets. And the other was to go and work uh, at Linklaters to do law. Um, and I actually ended up doing both. I, uh, I um, worked at JP Morgan for a very short period of time and realized that investment banking wasn't for me, um, mm. but like got a bit of a background in finance. Uh, and then I went and did my training contract with Linklaters and did my GDL and my LBC my legal practice certificate and my graduate diploma of law um just before i was actually start to start practicing as a as a lawyer i 
uh, started a consumer electronics company um, from an idea that I had to, to increase the amount of storage that was available on my computer, which ended up being one of the highest funded UK tech Kickstarter projects ever. And I was suddenly thrown into this world of manufacturing and electronics where I had to fly to China, set up an assembly line and work out how to do that. And like, so there was these, like, I'd say there's three like key elements that come out of that. One is law, one is finance, and one is just sort of like computing, computers, electronics, and maths. And like, I feel that crypto and especially DeFi fits very much of that intersection. Mm-hmm. But I was, I wouldn't, I'd like to say that I went straight into crypto from that point, but I didn't. Like, I got into crypto because one of my friends was like, hey, there's this new cryptocurrency called Ethereum, let's go mine it. And so I, um, my first touch of crypto was actually reading the, before Ethereum um, mainnet went live, reading the Ethereum Dagger Hashimoto hashing algorithm as it was then and working out what computer hardware we needed to build Ethereum mining rigs. Mm-hmm. And building Ethereum mining rigs and mining on the Genesis block of Ethereum and like, <laughs> like mining sequential blocks. And then later on just being like okay so like I've, I've got into this and i've sort of worked out the mechanics of it but like why are people excited about it and what's what what's this actually mean um and like why uh, why like what like this community is amazing like i've never met so many people in a room that have so much vision and passion for like what could be created by this like and so it was that combination of things that I felt really comfortable in like Mm. finance law um and like maths and uh and people who were like super inspiring about what they thought the this technology would be capable of and what it actually meant for the world that sort of sucked me into crypto and got me really really like excited Mm. about the space yeah there's so much energy in the space too it's a lot of fun to be around the people here because you just you feel good like Versus right. being in another type of business or industry where, um, you know, everyone's just kind of like, yeah, this is what I do. This is my job, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I love this technology. <laughs> and then you get into blockchain they're like, we're going to the moon. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I, I think that's definitely true. Like, have worked in a few other industries as well. Like, the, the I think it's the mission, right? Like, this idea that, this is technology that could change the world, but the only way it's going to change the world is if a bunch of us crazy people get together and like make it happen through this mm-hmm. combination of like complete, almost delusional optimism and self-belief and like willingness to just try really difficult stuff out. Like mm-hmm. none of this stuff is easy to use. None of this stuff is simple and easy get to get into but you have this community of people who like are the classic early adopters um who just want to be there because it and like often people talk about early like crossing the chasm talks about early adopters as people want to be first because they want to be first that's not the case here i don't think that was the case at the start of the internet either like it's because people believe that this has the potential to create a fundamentally different version of reality in a certain Mm -hmm. in a certain way and that's what that excites people. Um, but yeah, like certainly more passion than than almost any other industry you care to mention. Oh yeah, absolutely. When did you get into the whole like Ethereum, you know, mining and building rigs and stuff? Because I did that too. I, I started building Ethereum rigs 
like three, four years ago. And that was like when the GPUs were still a thing, like you could still use GPUs to mine Ethereum. I'd build them all out of wood and I'd buy the GPUs when they were cheap and line them all up and they'd be hanging. I'd make sure that I got all the air circulation right. And I got all the electricity down pat. And like, I, I like went like full tilt on this thing. And it was, it was interesting. I did make some money, but I mean, that cycle didn't last forever. Uh, so right, right at the start, like uh, we were mining, we were mining on the test net when it was one tenth, one tenth of the reward. So mm-hmm. mining from test test net forwards, and yeah, like it started it started off just buying just buying computers and 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 doing rigs, and then I then I looked at designing something like much more. Um, uh, heavy duty um, around the concept of um, of, of sub- submersion mining, so using mineral oil. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I like built these, like um, designed these laser these laser cut uh, inserts that meant that we could like insert like a very large number high density mining into like this mineral oil circulating mm-hmm. rig, and then put it into a um, into a uh, a shipping container, fill a shipping container up with it, uh, and then ship it to where the electricity was sh- cheapest, because that's your biggest determining factor of the profitability profitability of mining, whatever all else taken into mm-hmm. account. And I did all these calculations of like how much it would cost to manufacture and what the payback period would be and all this kind of stuff. And I, I eventually concluded that it'd probably be way better just to spend the money buying ETH. Um, right. So. It, so um yeah that's that's what we ended up doing is we just bought some ETH and sat on it um and that turned out to be a a fine decision um but like i feel bad saying that because like (laughs) if people hadn't actually done the mining and actually like engaged in it and taken those crazy like risks uh then we wouldn't have the industry have today so i'm 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 a bad person for hey those are the real pioneers man those are the real pioneers in this space they took some huge risk (laughs) right right exactly so but yeah like i it, it just unless unless you could bring the kind of hashing power to the network and be able to continually compete that you would be a meaningful percentage even like one or two percent without using a mining pool like you just weren't going to be you just were not you were never going to be as profitable as the other people were and they would always add mining power to the point that it wasn't profitable for you to add my for you to be in the network and so i was just like nah nah this looks that looks that looks like doesn't look like my game (laughs) yeah i kind of missed those days mining was fun now it's all about proof of stake and you know just buying into it i mean it probably would have been smarter just to buy ethereum back then when it was like eight bucks versus just you know spending thousands of dollars on these rigs that you know eventually you'll break even i don't know right exactly no no a hundred percent like like we we were like i was buying ethereum at yeah like for my first eth was under a dollar so like Mm. yeah like absolutely (laughs) way better (laughs) buy and and sit the, rather than mine, but yeah, maybe the maths has changed on it now. But I think whilst the, when the currency is appreciating rapidly, and when you think it's going to go through a rapid appreciation, you're always going to be better investing and taking the currency appreciation rather than trying to trying to beat the beat the curve up 
I think. Yeah, I, I've priced it out too. Um, it, this was a long time ago, but at the time you, I was, you know, mining enough Ethereum um, that I could, I could price out how much I needed to invest to, you know, get the equipment, get everything set up. Like, what did I want to do? Warehouse? Did I want to, yeah. um, a shipping container, like the wiring it up, how much would the electrician cost? Like all, all this stuff packaged up. And then, you know, looking at how much Ethereum I'm producing over a set period of time and then where I thought the price was going to be. Um, my initial goal was not to mine just as much Ethereum as possible and hope that it went to the moon, but to do these um, swaps with Ethereum. So like I'd mine it and then I'd swap it for um, a cryptocurrency with the highest spread. So at the time that could have been Cardano or Stellar or something that was like really, really cheap that had a better potential to, to double, triple or quadruple in price than Ethereum did. Um, but I'd mine whatever was the easiest to mine at the time. So I did this really interesting way of, you know, mining the best token and then just swapping it for the best token that, uh, you know, had the best spread on price. But man, that just... was, I was getting, it was really geeking out back then. And <laughs> did it do well for you? It did for a period of time. The problem was the the tech just kept replacing um, older generations of ASICs. And right. eventually the, all the GPUs I bought, they were pretty much worthless in mining. I was like, crap, I don't want to reinvest more money into new ASICs every six right. months or whatever it is. Right. And then right. the price is too volatile. It's a dangerous business. So like, unless I can do this in a shipping container at home, I don't know. I got to do something else. <laughs> exactly. Scale game very quickly. Yeah, this is how it is. Anyways, let's talk about Radix <laughs> since we've kind of gone on a different topic for a little bit. Um, what What is Radix um, and like, how did you start it and what's the mission? So um, Radix is the first layer one protocol built specifically to serve DeFi. Um, so layer one protocol is, mm. is obviously just the term of art, meaning a, uh, a decentralized ledger, technology that creates a decentralized ledger and i often say like bitcoin or like ethereum or like any of these other polka dot or any of these ones um or cardano it just describes a, a protocol that can create um a bunch of functionality it might be smart contract functionality it might be simpler than that uh, and specifically built to serve DeFi is uh because it points to the fact that we are focused on a specific uh, application industry area of, um, of of the technology rather than trying to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't founded by me. It was founded by a guy called Dan Hughes, um, who is uh, very much active and still part of the Radix team. Um, and he created it in, back in 2013 um, when it was called uh, eMoney. Um, and then it was created uh, around a very similar set of, of ultimate goals, um, which was fundamentally, you know, this decentralized ledger technology, blockchain technology is going to change the world. That is the first thing that I believe. The second thing I believe or I, or I see as being a problem is that for it to change the world, everyone in the world has to be able to use it. And if we're talking about a protocol, which we are, um, and you look at something like the internet, you don't look at the internet protocol and go, oh, that's going to have a problem at around the 1 billion users mark. Oh, that's going to have a problem around the 100 million users mark. Like the protocol is designed in such a way that you can kind of just add users to it as you need. And 
everything that Dan was seeing then and still true today has these has these parameters where it's like this is good for up to this many transactions this is good for up to this many transactions mm-hmm. and so radix was founded around this idea that you had to build a uh, you you had to build a protocol that could work for every single person every single device in the world simultaneously if it needed to for it to actually stand a chance of being as world changing as the technology had the potential to be um, the focus on decentralized finance came um, at the end of 20, at the end of 2019, start of 2020, where over the years, what had started off as being this speculative technology that everyone was saying, hey, this could do everything. This could do anything. Think of 2017 uh, and the sort of the ICO peak where everyone was building a token for everything they were going on. This is going to revolutionize um, bananas uh, and banana supply chain, or this is going to revolutionize the drinks business, all that kind of stuff. There there may be some truth in what was said then, like about these decentralized, you know, self-organizing marketplaces in the very long run. Like one of the things that's interesting about studying the history of the internet is that, like things that people thought were batshit banana bonkers in the 1990s are now starting to be businesses today um, or have in the last five years started to be viable businesses, but it just needed such a bigger penetration of the technology than the technology was ready for in in sort of the 90s and the 1990s and 1980s and i think that some of the stuff that we were like we're like oh that was stupid 2017 that was that was that was bananas um i think some of that's going to come through as okay but i don't i think a lot of it was wrong however what has started to emerge is what product market fit actually looks like for public ledgers. And the way that we describe product market fit is, is a, an application that, you, that leverages the advantages of multiple businesses being built on the same piece of infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is, the, this, this is ultimately why you're seeing DeFi like really starting to accelerate away because there's a there is an increase there is a multiplicative effect on each additional DeFi application that is brought on top of a ledger. Like you start off with Compound, and that's cool, and then you have MakerDAO, and you have Aave, and then you have Synthetics, and then you bring in Uniswap, and suddenly you're able to stitch all of these things together and move liquidity instantaneously between them. And every single additional protocol that is application, decentralized finance application that is added to the top of these protocols has this exponentially valuable effect, but the valuable effect is only insofar as these these DeFi products are composable, can be brought together to make a cohesive like product set. Mm -hmm. And so we saw that in 2019, and the early part of 2020, before like the DeFi space re- actually started to grow, like kick off, we were like this from a from a from a from the standpoint of actually looking at real utility that public ledgers bring. This is clearly the direction of play. And what's more, finance is not 
a market that you casually go into right if right. you look at the if you look at the realms of human intellect where people very smart people have come into an industry and continually innovated like computer science finance are, are probably two of the deepest and manufacturing i think is up there as well like mm -hmm. uh, the, and we can uh, there's a whole like topic right. on manufacturing that i would be very happy to talk about but yeah like the degree to which intellect has been applied to create systems that make these things possible is staggering and so if you're we 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 just looking at that and going look finance is a is a is a 111 trillion dollar market and what we're saying is that these protocols are going to fundamentally reshape that but to do that the tools have to be absolutely right and instead of going well let's say that we're we are the protocol for everything which is what ethereum's doing it's what polka dot's doing it's what nia's doing it's what uh solana's doing like oh you can do you know um uh telecoms on here oh you can do iot on here oh you, you can do supply chain management on here it doesn't create the focus that is necessary for you to fundamentally reshape an industry like the, the point of the point of any business, especially when it's a small company, and like I call everything in 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 in, in the crypto universe small at the moment in comparison to the industries we are trying to disrupt. Mm. You have to focus. You have to understand who your customer is, what their needs are, what their problems are, and how you best address those. And so we were looking at it and going, look, we have a technology that can fundamentally scale to every single person in the world. Every single person in the world is touched by finance in some way. And it is the place where product market fit is absolutely being proven out. What we need to do is make sure that we are properly serving that. So not just bringing the world's most scalable infrastructure but bringing the world's most scalable infrastructure to one of the world's most valuable markets with a technology that is proving out to have a specific set of um of of features that is super attractive to that market uh, and that's why and that's what radix is and why we're focusing where we are i love it i can see your passion for it <laughs> obviously it's clearly there um how, how does okay so how does this help serve or bolster, I guess, DeFi in general? Because I know DeFi is a really hot topic right now, and there's so much that you can do with it on top of, you know, blockchain and in this industry, um, you know, to create use cases and opportunities and solve problems and, um, you know, to help lots of people out. So how does DeFi and Radix come together here? So decentralized finance is um I, like first I'd, I'd like to sort of define mm -hmm. it a little bit sure. um so i do separate decentralized finance from let's call it centralized finance like what jp morgan does what what goldman sachs does what the new york stock exchange does and or, or let's be more specific the way that they do it the means in which they achieve the goal so let's say the goal is to create a uh, a money market where i can where i can uh, or or a debt market where i can buy and sell the loans that other people have created against some form of collateral so let's take the mortgage backed security market or the mortgage market where i can originate a mortgage 
uh, and then take that mortgage and I can and I can then resell it on in the financial market to people who mm. want to buy it. Now, in centralized finance, that process is a is, is a is a process of creating what I call discrete financial products. So there's a one-to-one relationship. I, as a financial institution, work out what the risk is for that individual borrower, for that particular piece of collateral, and I create a particular contract between me and him for that mortgage. Mm -hmm. Whereas what DeFi does is, is something different. It uses the concept of a large degree uh, uh, there is a there is a there is a pool of liquidity that is seeking a return and that there is a market price for the risk that that pool of liquidity is willing to accept in exchange for that liquidity being used for a purpose let's say lending out against the value of a house sure which is a which is a many to one operation rather than a one to one operation and so and decentralized finance is about reforming the basis for financial products, which you would recognize the end state of, but as, as, a, as essentially a liquidity protocol for allowing a, a bunch of people like who do not know each other to essentially crowdsource the concept of risk pricing, right? Mm -hmm. And so... That's fundamentally different from centralized finance, which is the reason I'm saying this is a really important distinction is because a lot of people say decentralized finance is just finance without KYC AML, right? Or mm -hmm. is just finance without a central intermediary. And that's actually not what's, that's not what's actually making DeFi interesting. Like without KYC AML is just removing like a lot of friction and hurdles to people allocating capital to this market. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't think that the, the market isn't valuable, wouldn't be valuable with it. It just wouldn't work because there's not enough liquidity in the space full stop. There isn't enough people to have all of these like regulatory barriers in place for actually getting your capital in there in the first place. But the beauty of it is, is that capital allocation, official capital allocation and risk pricing. So like, how does, if, how does Radix fit into this? And like, what is the, what is the path of DeFi? So we're, we're still in the experimental phase of what, what decentralized finance is and what's possible with it. We've worked out some primitives like uh, continuous function market makers or, or, or autonomous uh, automatic market makers like Uniswap, right? Um, but we've also got loads of problems like gas, the gas fee problem is a continuous problem for Ethereum. The, uh, the security problem is a continuous problem for Ethereum. Like me building decentralized finance on top of Ethereum and knowing that what I put out is safe and isn't going to lose, like the people aren't going to lose money either mm -hmm. because there's a bug in the code or there's a hack or it's hackable. Like that is, that is completely and utterly um, the wild west at the moment, like really difficult for a developer. Like you would never, you, you try and take a non like died in the wall crypto person and convince them to develop in DeFi 
like your everyday developer who's, let's say he's a developer entrepreneur, completely understands the concept of risk reward, completely understands the concept of creating a new company with a new idea. And then you show him the risk profile of building in DeFi and he'll go, no bloody way. There's no way I'm getting into that. And part of it is just because building this stuff is really difficult to secure, really difficult to, 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 to deploy. Um, so that's a huge problem for the industry. Um, and then the last part of this is like the tools are not really designed for building DeFi. Like the way that you, the, the, the way that you have tests, that you can set up testing, the way that you, um, you the interfaces, so like MetaMask. MetaMask is okay. I mean, MetaMask actually really sucks as a user experience, but for crypto, well, everyone's like, oh bad. my God, this is amazing. <laughs> no, it does. It does suck as a user experience. Absolutely. And I can point to lots of reasons why. Like, I don't understand as a user coming into MetaMask, I fundamentally don't understand what my private key is and why I have to secure it. I don't understand that I can use external wallets. I don't really understand why, uh, uh, what I am signing. So if I go onto a, a DeFi application and I, and I want to interact with it, what I see in MetaMask is completely and utterly impenetrable. Like it's saying, confirm this thing. I have no idea if what I'm confirming is anything to do with what the web website has done. It's just that in crypto, we've got so used to being like, oh, sod it, like, let's just give it a go. Or, oh, like, we understand what's going on in the background. So I kind of feel safe just saying confirm to a bunch of zeros and ones. Sure. But for everyday, for everyday users, no, that is absolutely unacceptable user experience absolutely unacceptable user but it's kind of like the whole terms and service thing with a website or an app and you kind of everyone just kind of ignores it and clicks accept right it's kind of the same principle not really because like what you're asking people if you think about it from the point of view of an outsider i'm putting real money into this i'm putting a thousand bucks into this and like for for a DeFi for a DeFi degen a thousand bucks is nothing but for your everyday person a thousand bucks is a lot of money mm-hmm. and I'm sending my money somewhere and the thing that says confirm, and I'm going to do this once, right? In the next month or the next three months, I'm not doing it every day. I'm doing it once. The thing that says confirm, I fundamentally don't understand if my money's going to the right place. That's not a level of user experience that anyone outside of crypto is, is going to be comfortable going yes to confirm. They're going to want to call someone up and go, Hey man, am I doing this right? Is there customer support? No. Is there someone who can tell you if you're doing it right? No. You go onto a Telegram channel, you might get scammed. Hey, don't worry. I'll help you out. Just give me your seed phrase and and I'll, and I'll have a look at what you're doing wrong. Like there Mm -hmm. are so many places where the consumer, the average consumer can get tripped up. So no, like I MetaMask is great because what we have, else what else we have in the crypto space is so terrible by comparison it is not a great user experience absolutely not but it shows it shows the path to what a great user experience might be right it's it's a good first step towards going here's how you create a good user experience and so what Radix is really like focusing on is, is those things. Like how do you make sure that the developer experience of building decentralized finance is a really great experience, both from the point of view of me feeling secure that what I build and deploy is going to work well, me being able to go from ideation to deployment as quickly as possible, and me having some idea that my user experience that I can deliver is going to be something that is going to be accessible to someone who has spent 
20 minutes reading reading my website rather than needing to have been in the crypto industry for the last two years to feel safe to be able to buy into my product. So how have you guys made the developer experience better? Um, is, is it just, you know, creating more efficiency or do you have like a certain standard and way of going about things or like, what are you guys doing better that separates you? So we, um, we basically threw everything away. We, 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 we don't use Solidity. We don't use the Solidity. We don't use the uh, Ethereum virtual machine. Um, we don't, we don't even use Turing complete executables. Like mm -hmm. everything we started from first principles. And there's two, there's two things that have to be, that you have to be able to do. The first is your application layer has to serve your consensus system i.e. DeFi has a massive problem coming up on Ethereum 2.0 and on, and on all of these shadow protocols in that sharding breaks composability. And what composability is, is my ability to go, all right, I want to go from Aave to Uniswap to, re to repay my collateral using a different currency in Aave, and I want to do it in a single transaction. Right? So I want mm -hmm. to do an arbitrage trade in a single transaction. And that's driving huge amounts of volume on Ethereum right now. It's what actually keeps the pricing consistent in all of the different protocol in all of the different De DeFi apps. And as soon as you introduce sharding, you break that atomic composability if those if those uh, applications are on different shards. So if I have Aave on, on one shard on ETH 2.0 and Uniswap on a different shard on ETH 2.0. What ends up happening is I have to wait for the thing to pass through the beacon chain to get onto the other shard and before I can actually get, get the opportunity and then pass back again. And that completely breaks this idea of a single transaction composability. And that's true of every single platform that is taking a sharding approach. Whereas what Radix realized that we had to do is along with the scaling is make sure that you didn't break that cross shard atomic composability between applications. So mm -hmm. to do that, we had to create a new way of doing executables. So we couldn't use the Ethereum virtual machine, but we also realized that what you actually want to be able to do for finance, <coughs> you don't need to be able to run doom or some like immensely complicated um, program on top of Ledger, what you needed is you needed assurance about input states, transitions, and output states. In very simple terms, I want to know that if I do a thing, the 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 system can only be in a cup in only a few states of, of, as an output. Like mm -hmm. if I send a transaction, it can either be success or fail, or success pending and fail. It can't be in any other super state. And all of that is what you can describe in these things called finite state machines. Finite state machines is how finance actually builds their applications. So if you look at transactional systems that Visa build or MasterCard build or like uh, the London Stock Exchange, et cetera, they all use finite state machines to describe their financial processes. Reason being is it's really, really secure. You have really good fundamental guarantees around the security of execution. And then the next level above that is what we call Scripto, which is our programming, our finance-specific programming language, which allows you to describe in a very easy-to-use way 
these these state transitions that you want to be enforced by the ledger so that you can build financial applications very quickly, but in a way that you have very high guarantees around the security of the execution. Mm -hmm. But then it goes one further than that. It goes, look, what drives open source code today? Open source code today is driven by things like GitHub. But the thing about GitHub is that the people who make money from using the open source code, there's no way of giving back to the people who created the open source code in the first place, not intrinsically. Like you can go and, you know, donate them some coffee, uh, like a cup of coffee or something like that. You see those donation pages a lot. But that ability to build on top of the expertise and the, and, and the intellect of others is what, what makes computer science so powerful because you have that collective open intelligence that is represented by open source code. What we realized is that you can build that directly into a public ledger. So if you create a fantastic continuous function market maker function, when you deploy that on Radix, you actually deploy that to an on-ledger catalog. And so if I come along and go, oh, I really need a continuous function market maker to be able to build my new stable coin. I can take that component, I can reference it, I don't have to, I don't have to download the code and then re-upload it, which makes uh, deployment of code a lot cheaper. I can just reference it and include it in my application that I'm building on Ledger. And I can also opt so that the, the developer gets money every time it's used. So that now what you have is you have a self-incentivizing open catalog of financial components where developers are incentivized to build, where there's high security around the executable and making, and it makes sure that it's really fast to market. I can go, right, I, there's half a dozen components I already need are already built on Ledger. I don't have to redeploy them. I can just use them, integrate, integrate them into my application. And I am feeding the developer ecosystem on Radix by making sure that people who come along and just spend an afternoon, spend a day building something cool on Radix are getting rewarded. They don't have to build the next yearn. They just have to build something great and useful for the ecosystem. And so this is how, this is, this, that's the full view of the stack of how everything Radix has done is around optimization and incentivization of building great decentralized finance products on, on Radix. Gotcha. So to package that all up for the end user, so it's, you know, a more secure, efficient, and, you know, for the developer, very streamlined process. It kind of makes this a lot easier for building these DeFi products. Exactly. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Perfect. What's, what's your guys' roadmap for 2021? Like, is, are you just continuing along building Radix out in this way? Or do you have like, anything scripted that you're building specifically in 2021 or use cases or partnerships that you can talk about and what what's on the timeline yeah so 2021 is an interesting year like we already have our token live um as a uh, on on ethereum as um e, yeah, the eradix or the exrd and that's all about making sure that when our main net goes live it is sufficiently decentralized from day one. Like building a to like releasing a token ahead of for a proof of stake network ahead of the proof of stake network going live has this fantastic opportunity to make sure that you have plenty of holders and a decentralized holding base far easier than just going around and selling those tokens as a single company. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's that's a big part of this year is just making sure that the mainnet goes live, that's nice and decentralized from the starting point, and that it continues that it continues that path. Um, in terms of uh, partnerships, we've already got a few announcements um, that we that we that we've put out with like Ren Ren's going to be integrated into the into the Ren uh, the Ren. VM is going to be integrated into the Radix network, meaning that you can decentralize, have a decentralized way of bringing assets onto the platform. We're partnering with Copper Custody, who is going to be allowing us to bring, you know, around 200 different crypto assets onto Radix so that people can, you know, you want Bitcoin on Radix, no problem. Um, you want, you know, you want Tron on Radix, no problem. I don't know why you'd want Tron on Radix, but you want Tron on Radix, no problem. Um, uh, we're working with uh, StakeHound, which is tokenizing uh, staked positions on other networks and allowing people to earn yield whilst having a liquid underlying uh, uh, token um, and sort of a bunch of other stuff that's sort of coming down the line as well. We, we, we're going to be integrating Chainlink and, um, and a few other things. Um, but the main like the main thrust of, of, of this year, aside from actually launching the main app, is concentrating on the on on the DeFi developer specifically and setting up this really important feedback loop um, of like design build iterate like making sure that people are actually able like we have all of these claims about our developer process being better easier faster cheaper mm -hmm. but like actually sitting down with developers and taking the time to build with with them and gain that feedback. Right. And some of that's going to be like hacks, you know, where we'll just be like, okay, we're going to build the top 20 uh, decentralized finance applications on Radix in the next week, um, which, you know, is a great, again, a great proving ground to be like, you say it's really easy to build things on top of Radix. Well, let's prove it. Like, show me that you can build Uniswap in an afternoon. Show me that you can build Compound in two days, right? Like, those are the mm -hmm. kind of challenges that are also really helpful for us to prove it out. Um, and then we're obviously working with um, a number of, 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 of DeFi projects to work out how we can bring the, their projects across to Radix as well. Um, but like that, that, that kind of that, those kind of partnerships are great from, from like PR and, and, and external validation point of view. But I, I don't fundamentally think that they drive the, the ecosystem forwards in terms of like actually answering the question, is this a great place to build in the same way that actually working with developers on a day-to-day -day basis provides that input? Because our hypothesis is basically everyone is rush, everyone is running at a million miles an hour to, to kill Ethereum, right? To be the next sure. layer one protocol. When so few people have actually stopped and asked the question as to whether or not the very approach we take to do things is the right approach. So what you end up is you get lots of move, you get lots of, you get lots of motion without much productivity. Because fundamentally we're in the situation where the industry is still an invisible dot on an invisible dot, $22 billion in DeFi is an invisible dot an invisible dot on the total financial ecosystem yet everyone thinks that if they don't run at a million miles an hour they're not they're, they're going to miss the boat and we're like well the boat it's there's still a long way to go before we are at the point where the world is rushing to us and what we need to do is build the best system possible for making sure that when that happens we don't we don't 
completely fall on our faces as a result of all of these terrible decisions that the industry has been making to compromise compromise to get to market is essentially the entire ethos of the crypto space right now and i think that that can be the right ethos for certain things, but it's absolutely not the right ethos for the stuff that makes the foundation of what you're building on top of. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you guys are up to a lot and it's going to be a very exciting year. Um, really excited also about DeFi and how that all shapes out. So, um, you know, best of luck to you guys at Radix and, you know, everything you guys are going to be doing. I got to run to a meeting in like 10 minutes because someone wants to meet with me. So I'm going to see if I can catch that. But before we, uh, you know, wrap it up and everything, where can people find Radix online um, to you know, get more information, you know, check it out? Uh, like what's the website? What's social media if you have it? Sure. So um, best place to start is uh, our website, radixdlt.com. Mm -hmm. uh, that's D for Delta, Alpha Lima, T for Tango, RadixDLT.com. Um, we've got, you can follow us on Twitter at, at, at RadixDLT. You can see us on Telegram. Uh, we're on Discord. Um, but yeah, like I always recommend just starting off RadixDLT.com is, is, is your starting point. Um, and then just go from there. Um, if you have like questions and you want to like understand more about Radix after you've read our white papers or like checked out our blogs or whatever, um, then yeah, the Radix community is super responsive and, and mm -hmm. always like very happy to, to, to help and answer questions. So I, I definitely recommend checking that out as well. Yeah. Where's the Radix community? Are you guys like on Telegram or... Telegram and Discord are the okay. main places. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Well, Piers, thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, elaborating on Radix and we talked about mining and DeFi and really dove into this stuff. So this was a fun conversation. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time to do it. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, talk to you soon. Stay healthy and stay safe.